Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. Experienced 
the unspeakable joy of forgiveness. And that's why I don't want to conclude our series on repentance without looking to end of repentance or the goal of repentance, which is the restoration of the soul to fellowship with God and to the experience of that unspeakable joy of forgiveness. In Psalm 32, the author of Psalm 51, David, gives us his feelings of forgiveness, where he says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The words of benediction are quoted in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul, for example, sets forth the gospel in his epistle to the Romans. He appeals to these words from Psalm 32. We remember that one of the devices that the prophets used in the Old Testament to communicate the word of God to the people was the use of the oracle. And there were two kinds of oracles. There were oracles of doom by which the prophet would be God's spokesman to announce the impending judgment that he would bring upon the nation. And there was also the oracle of real, the E-A-L, the good news, and the bad news of judgment was prefaced by the term cursed be. And the good news that was announced in terms of the divine benediction was prefaced by the word blessed. That's why in the Beatitudes, when Jesus speaks there, he uses this oracular form when he goes through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who do this and blessed are those who do that. Well, now David is pronouncing a, an oracle of weal that has direct implications for himself. I've often spoken about how the oracle of the curse or judgment, which is pronounced with the use of the term woe, is used by Isaiah in chapter 6 where he pronounces the curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am an unclean man. Now David is giving the contrast to the woe, which is the blessedness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. I can't think of anything more foundational for the Christian life than that. Because every Christian is a person whose sins have been forgiven. And to enter into that reconciled relationship with God by which our sins are forgiven is to enter into a state of blessedness. We are blessed not because we are righteous, because we are forgiven. And so David begins his psalm with that word, with that announcement. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now remember when we looked at Psalm 51, I said that the two chief metaphors for redemption in the Bible are the blotting out of transgressions, the removing of transgressions, or the covering of one's guilt 
by the righteousness of Christ. And so he said, not only are we blessed by forgiveness, but we're blessed because our sin has been hidden from God. Our sin has been covered. And the uh, first covering was the clothes that God condescended to make for Adam and Eve when they were ashamed of their nakedness and were hiding and seeking to conceal themselves from the gaze of God. But then we see the covering on the mercy seat in the, on the Day of Atonement with the blood of the sacrifice. And supremely, we see the covering of our nakedness by the righteous garments of Christ. That is the blessing of forgiveness. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. At the heart of the gospel is this concept of imputation, which means a legal transfer of accounts, a reckoning, or a transfer on the one hand in the cross, in the drama of the cross, we see our sins transferred to Christ, who is our substitute. That is, our sins are imputed to him legally, so that when God looks down from heaven at his son on the cross, he sees one who is covered with our guilt, covered with our iniquity by way of imputation. And then the other part of the gospel is the reverse transfer, where God then imputes his righteousness, his merit, to our account. Now, the way David is speaking of it here is negatively. He doesn't say, blessed is the man who receives the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And of course, he would believe that, and we understand that that's true. But he states it in the opposite way by saying, blessed is to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Because that's our standing before God is that rather than imputing to us the real guilt that we get, what we bear and therefore receive the punishment that we deserve, instead the Lord does not count our sins against us. And not only does he not count our sins against us, but he counts Christ's righteousness for us. It just doesn't get any better than that. And these are the consequences of true repentance. Then in verse 3, he said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Throughout church history, we have seen the great saints of the ages reflect and muse upon the experience that they describe as the dark night of the soul. When the soul senses the withdrawal of God, the withdrawal of his blessing from our lives, where he seems to have abandoned us, that he seems to have uh, fled from our presence. Another thing that we notice in meeting the lives of the great saints is that the older they get, the more acutely conscious they became 
of their own unworthiness before God. I mean, the more we progress in sanctification, the more aware we become of how much more there is left to be done before we have been completely free of sin. And so what we have here is David's description of what he had gone through in his dark night of the soul, which he uses the expression here, not of the darkness of the evening, but of the dryness of the summer in the midst of drought. Now, remember, this is a man speaking from a semi-arid environment, from a desert region. And if you've ever been through Palestine, you will see the phenomenon of what is called the wadi, W-A-D-I, which we call in, in southwestern United States dry gulches or arroyos, where you see in the midst of the desert these uh, pathways that are like creek beds, but no water is flowing in them. But they are made when the storm does come and you have flash flooding and the runoff from the mountains and so on create these crevices in the, in the uh, hard surface of the desert and they are the way in which the water is washed away. However, during drought in the desert time, the earth becomes parched and the land becomes cracked, and these riverbeds, these wadis, are dry. David is recalling here. During that time where I was experiencing guilt without relief, and the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me, and I felt oppressed by my burden of guilt. My soul was dry as a potsherd. I was like the drought in summer. And that's the language he uses, which everyone in Palestine was, uh, uh, was aware of that. And he says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer earlier when I kept silent, when I was not confessing my sin before God. My bones grew old. Isn't that an interesting metaphor? I can hardly stand the weight of the bones in my body as they were getting older and older, and I was becoming calcified. And I was groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, and I acknowledged my sin to you. And he said, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the prayer of David, expression of gratitude for having received the complete forgiveness and pardon of God. But beloved, this is the prayer of every Christian. Every Christian who has stood at the foot of the cross and who has confessed their sin and who has experienced the pardon and the remission of their sin in the hand of God. Then he goes on to say, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time that you may be found. Remember the phrase, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him when he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his spot, for he will have mercy upon him, and abundantly pardon. When I was a little boy, and I had to go to church on a regular basis, not because I enjoyed it, but because my parents made me go, one of the things that I was forced to do was to join the children's choir. And they had outfits that made me look like little Lord Fauntleroy, where I had the, the black uh, hassock and the white surplus and then the, the uh, stiff white big Carl collar and the great big black bow at my throat. You can imagine looking a little R.C. Sproul, looking like this angel in the choir loft. And we had to sing. And occasionally we would be joined by the adult choir. And my favorite anthem as a child, even though I didn't know anything about the things of God, was when we would sing with the adult choir and the lead tenor of the adult choir would sing the solo from that anthem, Seek Ye the Lord. And I can still hear him, Seek Ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him when he is. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his son. And he would go on and return unto the Lord. And return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy. And then he would say, He will have mercy. And then they would go on to the refrain, He will have mercy. He will have mercy and abundantly pardon. That was the refrain. It still reverberates in my mind. From my childhood, he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. That was the grace of God before my conversion that I was exposed frequently to the words of that anthem, which were taken directly from Scripture, because it is the fundamental truth of the Christian faith. That not only does he have mercy, and not only does he pardon, but his pardon is abundant. For those who seek him. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. And surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. For you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble, and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I just mentioned a few moments ago David's allusion to the drought in the desert. And I mentioned that the, uh, uh, the, these great wadis were there and they were caused by the flash floods that rained twice a year in the desert. And when it would rain, the water would come pouring off the mountainside and you would have these flash floods. And now David expresses the opposite metaphor from the drought, and that is the metaphor of the flood. If you've ever been to Masada, and you see how the, the Jewish people lived up on top of that mountain with its sheer cliffs, where they were besieged by the Romans and their ramparts and so on, and how they were able to survive up there on the top of that mountain because they had cut these huge cisterns out of the rock to store their water supply at the top. And at the base of Masada, down by the 
core of the desert, they also had these huge cisterns cut out of the rock and connected to these wadis so that when the days of, of, uh, of the flooding came and the water would be rushing through them, then that water in these massive cavernous hollowed out rock. And then when it was captured at the base of the mountain, the uh, workers would go down there one at a time with buckets, and they would hoist those buckets up to the top and keep them into the supply in the cisterns up there. But again, the whole defense structure of Masada was tied to these annual phenomena of drought and flood. And so David is saying that after a person experiences the forgiveness of God, they have now come to a safe hiding place, a safe, a safe place where in the midst of the flood of the great waters he falls in. You shall preserve me from trouble, and you shall surround me, he says, with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And I, of course, he's, he's not instructing God, but God is instructing him. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God is now speaking to David and to all who are in that position. Don't be like a mule. Don't be like a horse that requires a bit in their teeth attached to a bridle so that in order to get your attention, I have to yank on these reins and pull you around to myself. Don't be like that. And yet that is how we are. That is how we tend to be, even as Christians, that when we fall into sin, God has to jerk the reins to get our attention because we are as stubborn as the proverbial mule, and we need to be reined in by the strong right hand of God. And God is saying, don't be like that. But rather, we should be people who have the understanding to come near to the Lord when we need his forgiveness. And then David finishes this song by saying, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy, shall surround him. Boy, I love that image. It's not that we will just be touched lightly or tapped on the shoulder by mercy, but the mercy of God will surround us, be all around us. We'll be engulfed by the mercy of God. That's the Christian life. That's what is true for everyone who places their trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now here's a man who shouted before, who shouted in anger when Nathan told him the parable of the wealthy man who stole the ewe lamb from the poor man. And David shouted in anger against this person who would perpetrate such a crime in his kingdom. And then he shouted with groanings of pain when Nathan revealed his sin to him, saying, Thou art the man. 
And David was groaning and crying out in his misery in Psalm 51, pleading with God for his mercy. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, and according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And that's where we are. When we feel the weight of the pain of repentance, we cry out. Elsewhere, David speaks of his pillow being soaked and saturated with his tears from crying before the Lord day and night. But once he receives the forgiveness of him, once he experiences the pardon of God and enters into the blessedness of the forgiven, then his voice shouts with joy. Because the bones which the Lord had broken are once again rejoicing. And God, indeed, the God of his salvation, restores to David the joy of his salvation. The Ark was a massive ship. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. When many people think of Noah's Ark, they picture a small boat overcrowded with cartoon animals. Sadly, they don't think of real history. They believe it's a children's story. But Noah really did build the Ark, and God really did send a worldwide flood in judgment on sin. And the Ark wasn't a small, overcrowded boat. The Ark was far bigger than you think. This ship was two and a half football fields in length and as tall as a four-story building. And it had the capacity of 450 tractor trailers. There was more than enough room on this massive ship for Noah, his family, the animals, and the supplies they needed. Still wondering how big the ark was? Come and see it for yourself in Northern Kentucky. It'll help you think bigger. Learn more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
Kinds, not species. This is Ken Ham heading up the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Yesterday we learned that Noah didn't have to squeeze the animals onto a tiny boat to save them from the flood. The ark was a massive ship. But did you know that Noah had to take far fewer animals than you probably think onto the ark? You see, he was told to take two of every kind of land animal and seven pairs of some. So no sea creatures and probably no insects. That brings the number of animals way down. And Noah needed to bring kinds, not our modern species. Kinds are at about the level of family in our classification system. There were probably only about 1,400 kinds needed on the ark. There was plenty of room. Have more questions about Noah's Ark and the Flood? Get your answers at AnswersRadio.com. You'll learn so much about the Bible and Genesis at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. When I think about 
of my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. Would Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of this great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that be, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, Never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. This is Ken Ham, and we've launched a video streaming platform, Answers TV. This week, we're celebrating Ark Week in honour of the seven-year anniversary of the Ark Encounter-themed attraction. Now, if you visit our life-size Noah's Ark, you'll see that we feature a variety of sculpted dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. Dinosaurs were land animals, so they were created on day six of Creation Week. And because they were land animals, their kinds were on the ark. And don't worry about them being too big. Even the biggest ones hatch from small eggs. God likely sent young adults to the ark, not older, larger ones. The dinosaurs not on the ark died in the flood and became the fossils that we find today. Discover the true history of dinosaurs when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free daily insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Jesus, our Ark of Salvation. This is Ken Ham, often interviewed on radio and TV on the Bible's reliability. Today marks seven years since the Ark Encounter opened in Kentucky. The themed attraction features a life-size Noah's Ark filled with exhibits, a zoo, a playground, virtual reality experience. Okay, there's a lot there. But the most important feature is that we teach millions of children and adults that the Bible's history is true. Yes, there really was a worldwide flood as a judgment on sin. And God is going to judge sin again. In Noah's day, there was an ark with just one door that you had to go through to be saved. In our day, Jesus is the one door we must go through to be saved. You see, the Bible's history is true, and the gospel is true. Learn more about Genesis and the message of the gospel of Jesus when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. It's the most important message ever, so visit AnswersRadio.com. So strong, God is the 
and I stood in the presence of God's goodness, the Bible says his justice would kill us and damn us to hell. So let's say if you're a good person, have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, all the time. Why do you do that? Do you think, who in history has had his name used as a cuss word? Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? No, but I feel like it just rolls off of my mouth. <laughs> That's what it means by taking it in vain. You don't give it any due honor. You substitute it for the word beginning with S, describing human excrement, to express disgust. That's called blasphemy. God gave you life. The eyes you're seeing with a moment are a gift from God. The brain you're thinking with. The taste buds that you've got to enjoy good food, the ears you're using to listen to good music are all gifts from God. Just saying, God, I'm so thankful you've used his name as a customer. Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yeah. How many lies have you told? That's the ninth commandment. What? Ever stolen something? That's the eighth. Me stolen? Are we talking about, like, monetary value stolen, or...? You can tell someone, Tim, because they're abiding time. You say to someone, have you ever stolen something? They say, ever stolen. Me stolen? That means there's something going on in their brain that wants to abide time. They can think of an answer. But have you ever stolen something in your whole life, even if it's small, irrespective of its value? I think so. Also, I liked your response. That was very good. Not good. You like the rest of us. You're a self-admitted, lying, thieving, blasphemous, <laughs> adulterer at heart. So if you stand before God and his perfect goodness on judgment day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Definitely guilty. So does that mean like the, most of the population is going to hell? If they die in their sins and they stand before God on judgment day, they will be damned. We've got God's promise on that, and that's why I've spent my life sharing with people like you. So you've had a Catholic background. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? He did something wonderful. Do you know um, is there repent? <laughs> no. God actually did something. You know what it is. But because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world. You know that? Yes, I do know that. Well, this, is, this will change everything for you if you can get a grip of that. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines and someone else pays them, a judge can legally let you go. You can say, you're out of here, you're guilty, but someone paid your fine, you can leave. And even though you and I are guilty before God of a multitude of sins, God can legally let us live forever because Jesus paid the fine and full on that cross, rose from the dead and defeated death, and all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Do you know what repentance is? Um, I think it's in the lines of just regretting of your sin. And well, that's called contrition, where you're sorry for your sin. And the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. Repentance is where you turn from sin. You don't say, I'm a Christian, but you lie and steal and blaspheme and fornicate. That's playing the hypocrite. You've got to be genuine, perpetually turn from sin, but that won't save you. What will save you is God's mercy, his amazing grace. And he can extend that towards you because of what Jesus did on the cross. He can give you everlasting life as a free gift, not because you're good, but because God's good and kind and rich in mercy. Is this making sense? Yes, it is. You're going to think about what we talked about? I definitely will, yeah. I don't know. I feel like we're going to be sinning every day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But your sins are either seen or they're washed away. If you're trusting in Jesus, God no longer sees your sin. If you're a rainstorm, he's got an umbrella. He can stay dry. 
Well, God's provided an umbrella to save us from his wrath. That's the Savior, Jesus. If you're sheltered in him, to save from God's wrath. Remember Moses was hidden in the cleft of a rock from God's goodness so he wouldn't perish. There's a famous hymn that says this, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. If you are hidden in Christ, you've got everlasting life. If you're still in your sins, you're going to come into God's wrath on judgment day, and that breaks my heart. I can't tell you how much that horrifies me. I want to see you in heaven. Here's the reason you should take it seriously. When are you going to die? I don't know. God knows. God knows. Yeah. He knows everything. It could be tonight in his sleep. God forbid, but it could happen. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. So there's a sense of urgency. And examine my, my motive. Why am I talking like this? Why is there so much passion in my tone? It's because I don't want you to go to hell. I'm terrified for you. So I want you to go away and think about this seriously. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. I crank it open. I bet it's got a little dust on it. Definitely. Yeah, it's God's love letter to you, and it's a special book, the biggest seller of all time, because it tells you how to find everlasting life. Can I give you a book that I've written? Of course. It's a book I wrote called Scientific Facts in the Bible. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, Available at livingwaters.com. If you haven't seen the full, you've got to watch it. It'll explode your faith in God and it'll light your heart. It's a wonderful story. You can watch it right now by clicking up to left. website at truthbetoldradio.com that is t-r-u-t-h-b-e-t-o-l-d-r-a-d-i-o dot c-o-m truthbetoldradio.com do you have any questions suggestions comments or want to tell us anything send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com remember by sending us your email you give us permission to read it on the air so write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
Matthew, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father, perfect. Remain standing as we pray. Heavenly father, as we come to this word this morning, I pray this is not something we just brush quickly past. 
that we think to ourselves, well, that can't even be attained. And so why even aspire to that perfection? Only God is perfect, which is most certainly the truth. So we seek Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That we may have the righteousness of Christ and stand before God, holy as you are holy. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I am not Tom Buck, and this is not Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, as it says in your bulletin. Pastor Tom has asked that I not go on in the Sermon on the Mount, and so I'm respecting that, and we will not. He's going to be preaching on that section next week. So instead of looking forward, we're going to be looking back. That last statement, that last verse that Pastor Tom read last week hit me particularly hard. It does every time I read it. I don't know about you, but to hear Jesus say, you, therefore, must, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can we do that? How can we attain that? How can we aspire to this perfection? Who is perfect? And surely you're already sitting there and even whispered as I asked the question, saying, no one, no one is perfect. Yeah, you can go out and you can, you can talk to complete atheists, people who don't even believe in God, who don't believe in the word of Christ, and they will tell you, nobody is perfect. This guy standing up here behind this pulpit, I'm certainly not perfect, never have attained this. But have often pondered it, have often felt convicted by it. What does it mean to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? And even as I've pondered it coming into this sermon this morning, it, it, I will continue to reflect upon this for the rest of my life. That it is the righteous requirement of God in order to stand in his presence, in order to come into his kingdom, you must be perfect as he is perfect. God said to Israel, you must be holy as I am holy. Peter repeats that to the church in 1 Peter. You therefore must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. If we want to come into the kingdom of God, we must have perfection. And this is not some ambiguous statement. For Jesus even gives the comparison. You must be perfect as God is perfect. Without stain or blemish, righteous, holy, perfection. And we must have that to be with God. What's the alternative? Well, imperfection, what is the result of that? Separation from God, even worse than this hell itself the wrath of god poured out forever on those who could not be perfect that terrifies me it scares me to therefore come to the feet of the master and say god what must i do to be perfect you know that you can't be perfect. The world will tell you that you can't be perfect. 
Jesus has told us here that we cannot be perfect. As we even reflect upon what has been said in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, we're only a third of the way through it. We've been through one chapter. We've got chapter six and seven to go. We could get to this statement and be discouraged from even listening to the rest of it. Well, I have to be perfect, and I know that I can't be, so what is the point of listening to the next two-thirds of what it is that Jesus has to say when I can't even aspire to this? Jesus has gone through the law thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, and he has pointed out the things that we have failed at time and time again. He has said, you shall not commit adultery. Repeating from the law, repeating from the Ten Commandments, there were surely people that were there going, I've kept that law. I've never slept with anybody who's not my spouse, so therefore I've kept the law. I'm perfect. And Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ooh. Suddenly I realize I have not kept that law as well as I thought I had. Jesus said, you shall not murder, feeding from the Ten Commandments. There were surely people there that thought to themselves, well, I've never done that. I've never killed anybody. I've kept that law. Therefore, I can say I'm perfect. Jesus said, but I tell you, if you've even hated your brother, it is as if you have murdered him in your heart. If you even call him a fool, you are guilty of the fire of hell. And suddenly I realize I've not kept that as well as I thought. Even if there was some way that in my mind and in my body I could resolve to keep these things for the rest of my life, all these things that Jesus has laid down, going to the commandment in the Old Testament, talking about how the Pharisees had twisted this to mean something else, and then he gives the right teaching. Even if I were to pay attention to the right teaching and I were to do everything that Jesus has said for me to do, I still wouldn't be perfect. And I'm not just talking about, well, in your mind, you're still going to fail. There's going to be times you're going to try to be perfect. You're still not going to be able to do it. I'm not just talking about that. Let's say I could do this. Let's say I could keep everything that Jesus has said for me to do up to this point. I still wouldn't be perfect. Why not? Because I've already failed. Do you understand what perfection means? It means you cannot ever have erred at one point in your life. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of perfection. They lived in a creation that God had made by the utterance of his own voice, man and woman that he formed with his own hands. And he looked at all of his creation and he said, behold, it is very good. And yet even in the midst of paradise, Adam and Eve found themselves not content. Eve listened to the voice of the tempter. She took some of the fruit God told them not to eat. She ate it, handed it to her husband. He also ate. And their eyes were open, and they recognized they had disobeyed God. They realized they were naked, and they were ashamed. That was the first sin. We refer to that as the original sin. And it was because of that sin, mankind was driven presence God one sin and we were forever stained 
and could never be with God again. Because of the curse and the sin nature that had come upon Adam, everyone born from him from that point on would likewise be imperfect as Adam had become imperfect, stained, incapable of being with God. To stand in God's presence then at that point would have been certain death. For as he is holy and we are not, to stand in the presence of such perfection would kill us. As God had even said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. For God is that holy and we are that much not. To ever be in God's presence again, we needed mercy. But I tell you, it's even more than this. We needed a savior. For someone needed to take the righteous requirement of the law upon himself. He needed to keep it perfectly and then die for us, shedding his blood on our behalf so that through him we might once again attain the perfection of God. As Jesus says this here, as he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He is the one who is perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. And it is by faith in him that by God's mercy we can have the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John MacArthur explaining that passage says at no point in Jesus' life or in his death was he ever sinful. He was pure and spotless and undefiled. So therefore, what does this mean to say that for our sake he became sin? who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. MacArthur goes on to say only this. This is what that means, that Jesus in his death, God looked at him on the cross and looked at him as if he had lived my life. And then by faith in Christ, God looks at me as if I have lived Jesus' life. That is the righteousness of God, the perfection of God imputed to us. We have a borrowed righteousness given to us by faith that we might become the children of God. And as John says in 1 John 3, so we are. We have become the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
so to know now that we have the righteousness of God means more to, than just, well, well, good, Gabe, thanks for sharing that with me. Thanks for telling me that now I have the holiness, the righteousness, that perfection of God standing in his presence by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for letting me know that. Class dismissed. There is something that is being required of us here. There is something that we must do. And in fact, that is what Jesus is exactly saying. This is the implication of everything that he has said up to this point, where he says, you therefore means in light of all that I've just said, there's something that you must do. And what is it you must do? You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we know that we won't be right. But we must desire that perfection, and we must pursue it. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, it's not that I'm already perfect, but I desire to make it my own, for Christ has made me his own. For some uh, who will teach a doctrine of what is called entire sanctification, this idea that we can attain perfection on this side of glory. At some point, I don't really know uh, in this particular doctrine how they know that they've gotten there. Is you just wake up one day, oh, there I am. I'm completely and perfectly sanctified. And now I'll live the rest of my life out in this perfect sanctification until I go and meet with God in glory. I had a friend of mine that I used to minister with. We used to minister to high school kids together over lunch on Tuesday. He was a youth pastor at a Nazarene church. Nazarene is one of those denominations that believes in entire sanctification. And he and I had a conversation about this one time, and I asked him, have you ever seen anybody who is entirely sanctified? And he said, well, no. And he said, but I, I want to be. And I said, amen, brother, me too. I want to be entirely sanctified. And he said, but you don't think that we will be, that, that we can possibly be entirely sanctified on this side of heaven? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, because of what the Bible says. Paul also to the Philippians, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. When we enter into that holy perfection of God, then we will be entirely sanctified. In the meantime, we cannot get there now, but we aspire to, aspire to because God loves us and gave his son for us. And so if we love God, we must do what he asks. But knowing this wonderful, blessed grace, that though we may stumble and fall in that attempt to live in perfection, God is gracious to us and will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 2. Let's go to 1 John 2. Now, part of what I just mentioned to you is right there in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
Now look at what we read in chapter 2. 1 John 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate. What does that mean that Christ is our advocate? An advocate is one who speaks favorably on behalf of another. So imagine this. Right now, as Christ is your Savior, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is speaking of you favorably before your Father who is in heaven. Even if we sin, even if anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, that we may not lose hope, that we may not despair. Jesus said, be perfect. Suddenly I'm not perfect. I've failed. I can't ever see God. Good news is we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know what his answer was, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. There has never been a second of your life where you've done that. You have never loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Whatever love that you can give God will always be imperfect and unworthy of him. So how is it that God indeed loves us and we can pray before God and the Father listens to us and he loves us and he disciplines us and trains us and sanctifies us? How is this accomplished? How are we accepted by God? It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we have his righteousness so that, once again, just as John MacArthur had said about 2 Corinthians 5.21, when God looks at us, He looks at us as though he sees his own son. And that's how we know we have the approval of God. Going on in 1 John 2, verse 2, he is Christ, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This simply means that there is no other Savior. Everyone who is anyone in the world who is ever going to be saved is only saved by Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you have come to know God? For you keep the commandments of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14:15, you will show me that you love me. When you obey my commandments, we already know that God loves us. He made us, though he knew we would sin and rebel against him. And then he redeems us by giving his son as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8 
God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, as Pastor Tom had said last week, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And as God has loved his enemies, so we must also love our enemies. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that he loves us by what he has already demonstrated and shown to us through his son. We show that we love God when we do what he says. Jesus will even get to that in the Sermon on the Mount at the very end when we get to chapter 7. He says, the one who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. But the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon sand. And the storms come and beat against the house. The one who has built his house on the rock who is Christ, that house still stands. But the one who has built his house on sand that is shifting, when the storms come against that house, it will fall. And Jesus goes on to say, and great will be the fall of it. We must not only hear what Jesus has said in this word, we must also do what he says. As James says, faith without works is a dead faith. We're not saved by our works. But if we have faith in Christ, we will work. There will be works that we will do that demonstrate that we belong to God and that we love him when we obey the commandments of Christ. By the grace of God, he accepts us and he receives us even though we don't do that perfectly. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. My friends, you've never done that perfectly. You will get to heaven having never done that perfectly. And yet when you walk through those gates, you will hear your Savior say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now great is your reward. I'm reminded of that command constantly to love God because my surname, Hughes, means heart, mind, and strength. That's what my last name means. So I'm consistently reminded of the call to love God with all that I am. Yesterday morning, our daughter, Aria, came into the bedroom and climbed into bed with Becky and I. And uh, somehow we got into conversations about our friends, people that we know, and their last names. And Aria, who's six, she started asking questions about why people have the last names that they have. We talked about our friends, the Armstrongs. And she said, well, we know why the Armstrongs are called the Armstrongs, because they have arms and they're strong. We talked about our friend Sonia Walker. We know Sonia likes to walk, so she's called Sonia Walker. We talked about the Reeds. Well, they like to read, so that's why they're called the Reeds. We talked about the Bucks. And I asked Aria, so why are they called the Bucks? And she said, because they like Buckies. (laughs) And then she looked at me and she said, but what about Hughes? What does that mean? And mom chimed in, well, it means we like huge hugs. Yeah, and then then we hugged. But she didn't leave it at that. She wanted to know. No, I really mean it. What does Hughes mean? What does our last name mean? And I said to her, it means heart, mind, and strength. And she just laid there and said, heart, mind, and strength. And I asked her, what have we been told to do with all our heart, mind, and strength? 
and even my six-year-old daughter knows. Love God. And I said, yes, sweetheart. With everything that we are, we are to love God. We can't do that perfectly, but our Father is gracious to us. And that we have an advocate, one who paid the price for our sins and then ascends into heaven to the right hand of the throne of God where he speaks favorably for us on our behalf. And as Paul again said in Galatians 2.20, as Christ gave himself for me, the life I now live in the flesh, I'm going to live by faith. Verse 4 of 1 John 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. My friends, we need to have more than a conversion experience. We need to give our lives to God and live for his, his service, live for his name. Jesus did everything to the glory of God. Our brother Andrew shared that this morning as he was quoting from Philippians chapter 2. It's in verse 11 where it says that Jesus did all these things to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus did this, so must we. We must also do all to the glory of God. If we say we know him, but we do not do what he has said, then we lie. We don't actually know God. What we know is a God of our own making, a God of our own design. This is the God that I like. He lets me do whatever I want. He lets me be whoever I want to be. That person does not have the truth. You know, this world even demands perfection. As I said, even people of the world can know that nobody is perfect. But there's, there's something virtuous about the way they say that, right? About, about we, who are, when we are worldly in our minds, we have worldly minds. When we think like the world instead of thinking like Christ, we can turn imperfection into a virtue. And instead of just simply saying, nobody's perfect, you go, well, nobody's perfect, right? You have your imperfections. I have my imperfections. So let's just love one another. Doesn't matter. It's almost like there's, a certain kind of perfection about being imperfect. We're perfectly imperfect, which is a paradox. It's a contradiction, and so is the logic of this world. So is sin. I heard a pastor say recently, sin is stupid. That needs to be on a bumper sticker. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Everything that you try to rationalize about sin is absurd when you understand the righteousness of God and what he has called sin. Sin incurs the wrath of God, brings about the wrath of God on a person who rebels against God. Yet there's people in this world that will say these sins are good and they're perfect. We're about to enter into a month where we're going to hear for a whole month long what this world says is good and right. They'll call it pride. Such an appropriate name for June, Pride Month celebrating debaucherous sins pridefully with no shame. The world will say that if you're going to be perfect, you must think like us. 
You must do what it is that we do. You must embrace this. You must love like this. And in the pride parades that are going to be going on, even some of them close to Lindale, in those pride parades, there will be people surely who will be saying that Jesus loves me and he approves of what it is that I am doing. God is on my side. There are people that will say in this way that they are without sin, but they are liars and the truth is not in them. Now, not to look at the world and say, oh, well, those guys out there, let me put it upon you. If you say that you love God, do you keep his commandments? Do you do what he has said? You go through what Jesus has given in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You go through Romans 12. You go through 1 Thessalonians 5. You go through Galatians 5. Any of these places where it says to us, this is what it means to follow God. Do you desire to do those things? Or there are parts of your Bible that you've marked out and you've thought to yourself, I can do this and it really won't be that bad. Remember, friends, Adam and Eve ate a fruit. And it separated us from God eternally if God had not intervened. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We go on in 1 John 2, 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, The love of God is perfected. Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. When we hear the word of God, when we do what it says, the love of God is perfected in us until that day that we reach perfection and join him in glory. 1 John 2, 6, look at verse 6 now. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And again, I hope that's penetrating to you. I hope that is hugely convicting to you. You see what it is that Christ has done for you. His death on the cross for our sins. His resurrection from the grave conquering death for us. And you see that, and you say, that's love, and I want to be as my Savior. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to do as Jesus has done. Once again, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He is one who is saying this, as one who is perfect. Jesus Christ is perfection, and we have the righteousness of God when we believe by faith in him. Skip ahead in First John to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. I've quoted a little bit of this already. First John 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us 
talking about we who are Christians, who are followers of God. John, in the more immediate sense, talking about the apostles and the apostolic ministry. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we have considered this word once again, that you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I pray that we don't shrug this off, that we don't rationalize or try to justify ourselves like the rest of the world does, like we once did before we were in Christ. Trying to say our sin is fine, God loves me, he's just going to forgive me for it anyway. We try to continue on in sinful things that God has promised that he will judge. We think too highly of ourselves. We think pridefully of ourselves. I pray we would be convicted in our hearts. We would understand, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when we examine ourselves, we look at those temptations and we ask this question, would I rather have this? Or would I rather see God? We know that we cannot be perfect, but Christ is perfect. And we know we can have the righteousness of God by faith in him. So lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people say. I got for Tripitoria that was uh, Pastor Dave Hughes and that was on um, WWUT text on YouTube he usually has WWTT with little shorter things when we understand text but that one's called WWUT text T-E-X-T so check that out his sermons on there and thanks for listening to Tripitoria I'm going to go out with Nancy and friends and the VRBLE, and bye for now. The B-I-B-L-E.